Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. In the week that Boris Johnson is no longer Prime Minister, but somehow Liz Truss now is, it seems only fitting that our guest this week is the author and Guardian political columnist Marina Hyde. Her new book, What Just Happened, which is a collection of her columns since the time of the Brexit referendum is out in the first week of October and is available for pre-order now. Before we get to her conversation with Robin, in case you missed the news, this year's Compendium of Reason hosted by Robin and Professor Brian Cox is on sale now. It's going to be on November 23 at the Royal Albert Hall. Lots of secret guests as ever. Some of the secret guests we had at last year's Albert Hall show included Boy George and Mark Armand, Nina Conti, Helen Glover, Steve Backshall, Chris Jackson, Jim Al-Khalili, Sophie Ellis-Baxter and loads, loads more. So tickets for that are on sale from the Royal Albert Hall website or cosmicshambles.com slash compendium. Likewise, go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons and you can get tickets for the nine lessons shows on December 16 and 17 at King's Place. And as ever, uh, all profits from all those shows will be going to charity and One of the reasons that we can keep doing these shows each year and giving everything to charity is thanks to your support on Patreon. So patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support this podcast and get extended episodes each and every week. So there's about an extra 10, 15 minutes of chat with Robin and Marina on the, let's call it director's cut this week. And if you can't support us on Patreon, that's fine as well. There'll always be this shorter version available for free but you can share the podcast on social media or rate like review five stars on apple podcasts that is free and helps us out as well now enough of my waffle here is robin and marina Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. Though, as you probably know, Josie's not been uh, book shambling. For, she's on and off. She's on and off. She has so many uh, wonderful other things that, that she's doing. Uh, and, and one of them is uh, balancing being a brilliant comedian with uh, also having two children. And uh, I just saw today that her new show uh, up in Edinburgh at the Fringe has four stars from another reviewer, which uh, it probably deserves five. Today... Uh, I'm talking to someone who, well, we were just talking before we start recording, someone who may well be uh, officially a coping mechanism um, for the chaos of political reality uh, and uh, has a, a book of her columns for The Guardian coming out on the 6th of October titled What Just Happened, joined by uh, Marina Hyde. Hello. Hello, Robin. How, what an honour to be on Book Shambles, I must say. Do you know what? The terrible thing, I, I've been really worried about this because I've also been reading a huge amount of Marina Warner in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> and you know when you start to just go, you, you, you get name panic. And I go, what if I start asking Marina Hyde uh, about the uh, Freudian nature of late 18th century fairy tales? 
Well, where, gonna, where will that go? You're, you're going to get an experience rather like when that taxi driver was accidentally brought onto BBC News to be an expert on something. But, you know, I'd have a go. I'd have a go. Well, we might, we, we might, we might deal with that or we might deal with uh, <laughs> the magical realism in the paintings of Paula Rago. But before that, um, let's get to th that coping mechanism. Because I really do think that, uh, as, as I was mentioning to you before, when I was like on, on tour with Brian Cox uh, after Brexit, um, he would, you know, we were, we were in Australia and suddenly he'd go, when we sit down at breakfast, he'd go, oh, brilliant, there's a, there's, there's a, a, a new column, you've got to read it. And did you, do you get a sense of the fact that what you are writing, people, it is just a brief moment where people are able to trepan the craziness out of their head? It's so, it's so odd. It's, it's really, I, you know, it's, that's how bad it is that I am a coping mechanism, if you say I am. I think it, it's, first of all, what an honour that he's reading my columns. And second of all, I, I do get, you get this sort of sense, I've always, I've, because it's been so mad ever since the sort of say, just sticking a pin in it, say since the Brexit referendum and it's all, everything became chaotic and then never seemed to stop being chaotic. I've always tried to sort of be a bit of a friend to the reader and just say, hi, yeah, you're not alone. Other people are thinking this too. And um, although I can be perhaps quite mean to my targets, I always feel I am trying to do it in the name of the amount of people who are just throwing their hands up at the news and basically saying, what just happened? Mm. Um, and so I, I have always felt like, God, I'm trying to be in a gang with everyone else who's having to go through this. Do you think, I mean, did you, going back over these columns over the last uh, six years, did you find, see perhaps sometimes a development of vitriol as you saw the mendacity of so because you know there, there are certain characters uh obviously including the the current well he might i suppose he won't be when uh or whatever you know the holidaying prime minister who's currently caretaking away um did you start to did, did you go did you notice a you know an increasing move from the avuncular to the vitriolic i think so i mean you have to i suppose you have to you it that develops in as you say in response to the story and you know, I remember when I first started, um, particularly, I sort of feel, I do feel I quite sort of found my voice in writing about politics, just in the kind of, around the EU referendum and in the immediate wake of it, which is, you know, quite fortunate in a way, because it would, and, but it became this big story. And, you know, the news, which you could have cheerfully ignored for a couple of weeks at a time before then, became something that people were sort of obsessively checking on. Um, and I, I, I suppose, someone said to me will you what will you do in a year when this is all over and I remember thinking yeah even then I, I just don't feel it will be over in a year <laughs> obviously in my wildest kind of misimaginings I did not believe that six years on we'd be trying to unpick the one bit of the Brexit deal we'd done that we that the news would have just become more and more chaotic and that we would be staring down the barrels of a Liz Truss premiership but you know here we are well, that's that. The, it is. I, I always feel like somewhere between uh, the the character in I Am Legend, the Richard Matheson novel, and and the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original version, where at, at the end someone is appears to be mad, screaming on a highway. Don't you? You know, you're next. You're next. Can't you see? And you know, the the Liz Trust Premiership is. Uh, I mean, I think it is. It, it to me, it feels utterly insane that each time you get what you think is going to be the worst politician. Yeah. 
it's it's like a staircase downwards all the way and you know every three years we've had this so one of my children said to me if you i mean if you're this or not why don't you just join the conservative party then at least you could you could vote every three years because every three years you get this mad choice and you're thinking oh my god just please you know i mean this is ridiculous you're getting a choice i remember you know in 2016 we had this choice and people were going okay, please let it be Theresa May, just because they didn't want it to be Andrea Leadsom. Um, and it sort of worked on that occasion, but obviously unraveled soon after. Then, you know, you've got J Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt and people are like, please let it be Jeremy Hunt, like it's a bomber or something, you know, just because they can't stand Boris Johnson so much. And now, I mean, you know, I do find myself saying, God, I, I really want it to be Rishi Sunak, who I really can't stand. But I think would would be the better option. And it's, I don't know, why have I not at any stage perhaps just become a voting member of the Conservative Party? How many times does this have to happen before I learn? Do you, how do you manage to keep your madness at bay? Because that's the thing that uh, I, I think so many people feel that uh, they are, are being perpetually, ultimately gaslit by the, the nature of, of, of politics and the games that are being played with so many people's actual lives, you know, the reality yeah. of, you know, on the day that we record this, we see the news of, you know, inflation at over 10% and that a lot of that is on just day-to-day -day daily food yeah. requirements. We're talking about the the, the rise in, uh, you know, obviously the huge rise in, in, in energy costs. We're talking all of these things. It's it somehow it's hard not to see it as a perpetual game within their hands that the actual, yeah. you know, if, if, if someone was on the news and they said, you won't fucking believe what they've just done now, there will be absolute outrage at the idea that someone swore. Yeah. I and yet actually ultimately killing people. You know, this is this is a thing which is and, and you're always you will then get accused of being histrionic or melodramatic or whatever. You know, I have friends who have lost members of their family uh, due to the uh, chaotic and sometimes idiotic uh, decisions made by well, this yeah, party I mean, and this leader. And a big theme in this Tory leadership contrast that we're going through now has been people, you know, really both people sort of wanted to talk about and people, some of the candidates who went out in the earlier rounds talking about, you know, wanting to preserve Boris Johnson's legacy. And it's like, what legacy? Like, you know, 180,000 people are dead and we've got no money. I mean, it has moved to a much more real, this is, it, it's become much more real now because of um, the economics. Um, so for many, I mean, writing, for, you know, but writing about lots of this stuff, I mean, it was a sort of complete mad turmoil, most of the Brexit stuff. And um, people did absolutely mental things like, you know, watch BBC Parliament in the evenings and really things that, you know, honestly, you're not supposed to. I actually went to see a comedian friend of mine who was doing a tour and his one of his early gigs was in Worcester. And I went to stay the night in Worcester and at, um, I went the bottom of the hotel was sort of a bar and at 3 p.m. I went to thought I'll go and have a cup of tea while I'm um, you know waiting and the bar was full of lots of different people sort of couple pairs whatever on a I was um, sitting there absolutely glued to a television screen not all together just in separate tables you know with the, and I looked at the television screen and they were watching the Supreme Court talk about the proroguing of Parliament and I just thought it's 3 p.m. on a Tuesday in Worcester. Something very strange has happened to this country over the last few years. And yes, and sorry, to go back to the earlier part of your question, I actually, I keeping the madness, in a way it's quite, my job has been quite cathartic. 
I don't feel I have like unresolved news issues because I type, I, you know, I've typed my way through it and there's something quite, I don't know what, you know, satisfying, cathartic, whatever it is about trying to think of the best way of, or trying to think of a joke or something. There's some sort of way of, you know, they always say, if you want to work through things, it is quite helpful to write them down. <laughs> so, cause I have to write them down. Um, it's been quite helpful for me. So I don't feel that, but now we are moving into, as I say, the much more real phase of this, because whilst, kind of highfalutin arguments about sovereignty or this or that bit of the Brexit deal were kind of mad and histrionic. Now, I think, I mean, I just, everybody you talk to says that it's at least 18 months of pure horror, that people simply can't imagine the scale of coming down the slipway. Um, and I think actually during the pandemic, particularly, I remember thinking, now I've got to be really careful on the tone writing about this. Um, because, you know, at the start, at the very start, you know, obviously you want the government to succeed and you want them to handle this kind of unprecedented thing, which you give them a lot of slack in the best way possible, because otherwise, as you say, many, many people are going to die who don't need to. Um, and it just became so quickly apparent that they were going to mess it up massively. And I actually find the... <sighs> I actually find the way they did it all over again in the autumn of that year so much more unforgivable because they had had the lesson in real life, you know, in ten, tens of thousands more people died than needed to. And, you know, someone even like Dominic Cummings, who was there at the heart of it, will say, you know, they wouldn't listen. And it's quite obvious that this is what happened. It, it, people paid with their lives for it. But then to do it all over again in the winter, I just think, I mean, that was really criminal, actually, in my view. I mean, I've been hugely helped by the raw material for this book because every you never sat there thinking, oh, I wonder what I'll write about this week. <laughs> did, did you find that when you were going back over the columns and you were kind of putting them into the order for the, for, for the book, into the different chapters, were you sometimes taken by surprise and going, oh my God, that only happened one year ago. And that, that was, I thought that was going to be the biggest story of the week and it got forgotten within three hours. Completely, nothing. It's been very hard to make sense of a, a huge amount of what has happened. And... It, I also, I had absolutely no memory of writing a huge amount of things and also no memory of things that were really sort of important, supposedly at a time like meaningful votes or indicative votes. What even were these? I just remember that everyone was watching television in, in the evenings to see what was happening in the House of Commons and people, you know, my children could do a John Burko impression. I mean, I just feel, you know, they failed, but also I failed as a parent. <laughs> during that time I, I had to write about it so I say okay just speak up we just got to watch it one more time and I just anyway yeah I don't it's been it's a huge amount of it I'd forgotten and some columns I left out even though they were probably more fun ones but I had to try and tell the story of what how it how it unfolded because it, it's but it was all of these things you see are told in the moment so it really is what I felt on that day and maybe six years I was quite pleased that I when I went through it that I didn't think oh well this was completely barkingly wrong um but you know what of something I wrote at, a at the time I was quite that most of them I didn't think oh well I called that one wrong I, I thought it was interesting that the, the the book opens with uh the column about the murder of Joe Cox that you wrote um, which I thought balanced the fact that there are within that some very some some very beautifully written kind of explanations and 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 barbs and almost it's almost 
comedic some of the takes on for instance Nigel Farage and the way that yeah. he will try and appear and I thought that the, the thing that interests me about starting with that column is it seemed to to also say uh yes a lot of this just seems like fun yeah but under this fun and under all of those columns there is a a a, a a, a cold reality that can lead to this kind of horror. And I, I just wondered how, you know, to open with that seemed to be, I, 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 I thought was a, is a very strong thing to do. Well, I've, I felt that you, you have to stick a pin in it somewhere, as I sort of said in the introduction, but I do think that that, to, to start immediately with something that just reminds you of some of the stakes involved and also of the sort of the potential horrors, I really felt that that day was a kind of a, where a line was crossed and it's very hard to, to I don't think we've got climbed back out of that hole really I mean it was such a divisive and horrible campaign the referendum campaign and obviously in a way it's kind of be slightly forgotten because of what came after but when that happened I thought wow this is this is so real you know and it's not just talk, it's not just people making wild claims and wild accusations it's always anchored in the human and real um, and I suppose that goes back to what we're talking about just a, a moment ago you know now when you kind of think wow the music is going to stop Liz Truss is going to be prime minister and we're staring down the barrels of some unbelievable kind of economic I mean, horror show really and it's really and that as you say is that everything all of politics is human even at times when it seems it's the politics is people's lives yeah that um, seems to get forgotten the whole yeah you know, the... well we think about politicians lives to some extent but we it's very I think that people are going to realize the intimate connection between statistics and, and real life a lot over the last uh, over the next 18 months it, it is an intimate connection I remember actually at the time of the um before the referendum they did a poll of people saying um would you like to you know would you uh would you accept economic an economic hit um for Brexit and people people said yes but when people were asked if they understood that the economy was connected to things like their salary and things like that, they said no. But that people didn't necessarily make kind of those, you know, chains of connections. And I don't blame them that. That's, I don't think we educate people properly about lots of this stuff. So I don't blame them for it. But the fact is that they are now discovering in real world terms. <laughs> Um, not not just about Brexit because that's just one part of this story, but I'm I think that people will really feel it very intimately, and I and I really don't know what will happen as a result of that. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle tattle that dropped out of our mouth. What about because you started in um, you, you you've written both about sport and and, and also show business and I was yeah. thinking about Chris Hedges in one of his books I forget the title of the book I remember him it's kind of a, almost a, a, a reworking of Neil Postman's uh, um, what's it, amusing ourselves to death yeah. in which he says politics has become wrestling this was written I think about twelve years ago he said if yeah. you look at the nature this was in particular American politics at that time yeah. 
and he was talking about Trump and the way that he loved doing all the kind of WCW stuff and the way yeah. that the I'm gonna come and get you, I'm gonna. Um, that does seem to be that you you actually had the perfect journey into eventually going yeah. into politics. Well, I, when I started writing about celebrities in The Guardian, which we didn't really cover celebrities, um, and I think perhaps to some extent thought we were a bit grand. And then I remember the former editor, Alan Rusbridge, is saying to me, yeah, I feel like we're going to be like the Times in the 1960s that like said, we're not going to do rock and roll and we're going to be ridiculous. So, so I created this column called Lost in Showbiz, which was for The Guardian. And that was definitely where I found my, I think I often like sort of copied other people before um, then, but that was where I found like my own voice and a way of writing about it and a way of sort of choosing the subjects, which is kind of half the thing and the tone, which is, I always think that the choice of subject and the tone itself is everything. I mean, if people get the tone wrong, and by the way, this is what happens to me, I'm sure lots of times, but if other people get the tone wrong, they can be saying the most sensible thing in the world, but I just don't want to hear it. So I thought the sort of the tone writing about celebrities, also in the 2000s, there was like two subjects, which were, you know, Islamic fundamentalism and uh, celebrity culture. And that was the two big subjects of the decade. Looking back, it should have been 2008 was a much, the economic crash was a much bigger thing than anyone realized and understood at the time. And all that people think it was that 9-11 was the biggest event of that decade. I don't think so at all. I think 2008 was the biggest thing. Anyhow, sorry, that's a digression. Getting back to it, yeah. So I really found my sort of voice writing about that. And it was the perfect journey because I do, you know, that all of those old quotes, politics is showbiz for ugly people. But I actually think that the people's obsession with things like reality TV. Don't forget that the biggest type of television program at the time was reality TV. It was absolutely, these formats were monsters, like on both sides of the Atlantic, everyone watched them all the time. Um, the biggest reality star of that generation, Donald Trump became, um, used The Apprentice to turn himself back into someone having been languishing in obscurity since the nineties. He turned himself back into somebody and he used that to become the president. I think that the obsessed, we all became like obsessed with, you know, voting at financial cost in all these kind of crazy competitions. Simon Cowell, by the way, was obsessed with referendums. He thought they were a great idea. And he wanted his one, he had a big idea for a show, which was going to be called, it was like a referendum type show. They were going to throw the big issues out to the audience, let them decide, forget MPs doing all this stuff because they're, you know, what do they know? Let's throw all the big questions out to the audience. And he was going to have a big red telephone in the middle of the stage and number 10 were going to be invited to ring in to explain their position. If this is a man whose endorsement was completely courted and desperately sort of sought by both Gordon Brown and David Cameron. And I just don't know. I think that, you know, we've got what Simon Cowell wished for. Mm. Reality TV has become reality politics. You know, these, this, the endless churn, the sort of the voting, the kind of dopamine hit, the manipulation of emotions. I think, yeah, wrestling, reality TV. These are the these the conventions of these have been imported into mainstream politics completely. In fact, they, to some extent, they are mainstream politics. I also wonder you you, you say in the introduction that you you pretty much got into this world by, by mistake you you you, yes. you ended up with a job answering phones at the sun and then yeah. that led to to and i worked as a temp i worked as a temporary secretary well i was actually not my typing speed wasn't quick enough so i actually was a temporary receptionist and i worked mostly into banks or you know wherever they sent me to and one day they sent me to answer the phones at the sun and that's how i started i didn't and that's know what i wondered is seeing the, the background of various different newspapers um 
how much of it does seem again in the same way that politics can seem like for those who are actually doing it like a game how much do you when you look backstage do you think people aren't thinking about how important this will be actually for real lives they it, it, it it's a game of just how, how how do we sell today's newspaper let's turn this person yeah. into a demon or well, when I was working at The Sun and I was answering the phones on the showbiz desk, which was great fun, something I might, the real scales fell from my eyes because I realised that almost everybody who was in the showbiz pages wanted to be. They would literally ring you up and tell you who they were in bed with if it was another celebrity. I mean, you couldn't believe it. I, I realised that there were these whole machines conspiring really to get these people into the paper in whatever day, you know, whatever way they could. And some, and celebrities would regularly ring in and volunteer themselves. I actually, and I really, there's a lot of that in politicians, isn't there? The sort of sense that it's actually a matter of pride to be, you know, huge amounts of people think, they love going around saying, oh, this is just like the thick of it. It's like, yeah, it's not supposed to be a guidebook, the thick of it. It's supposed to be, but people think that they, you know, that people, people enjoy the sort of, the showbiz of it really. And actually, I tell you what, something really mad happened during the last few years where these absolute most obscure people became sort of celebrities or celebrities. You know, we all suddenly knew who like Marc Francois was and Steve Baker, and they would go on the news and literally preeningly say, I remember watching Steve Baker say, well, you know, I've been called a Brexit hard man. And I was like, what the hell, what is the Wickham MP doing on my telly like more times than Lady Gaga? I find it, you know, it's mad, but we watched these people and they became characters that people, you didn't, no one knew the names of these backbenchers ever, ever, unless they were your MP and, and that was your misfortune. But That's became, the bit that gets me. It, yeah. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, no, carry on. No, I was just gonna say, it is the childish glee that you yeah. see um, uh, for the fact that, because the way that they all make up names for what they are, as you said, you know, Brexit hard man, I'm this and that, you know, Mark Francois, you, this, it, it's fascinating that um, a, a, a soldier friend of mine was telling me about, you know, some of these MPs who, Mark Francois is someone who's on the Mitty board, do you know about the Mitty board? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Walter. For those who don't know, yeah. it's basically named after Walter Mitty, the the uh, the, the, the 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 famous uh, daydreaming character um, of people who go on about the fact. Well, of course, as someone who's been in the army, and of course, as a tough guy who's been in the army. People in the army absolutely despise all this. Yeah, and and, and it's yeah. they're, it's they're the all. You know, he was it, in the TA, by the way, like David Davis, who always says, "Oh, you know, I was in the T. You know, I was in the SAS." And as Simon Hoggart, who was a brilliant sketch writer, the late Simon Hoggart in The Guardian said, um, no, you were in the territorial SAS, meaning you strangle the Queen's enemies with piano wires, but only every third weekend. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but th that is... Come on! The mythology, I think, it's all, they're all, it's all TA. Not, which is, you know, fine and a great and a noble thing. Well done, everyone who does it. But they do really make it sound like they've just got, you know, they would one off a military cross for doing what? Being in the TA Catering Corps. Come on. Well, it is basically, yeah, it, it's not far off being basically being a, a battle reenactor and confusing that with actually having fought in the Battle All... of Naseby in the 17th century. Yeah. <laughs> All real soldiers absolutely hate it. And they are obsessed, as you say, with people who, uh, like, just kind of, flam up their military record um who are when they're mps so many of them are obsessed with it and they really caught they're really fussy about it if you go on any like army talk boards you can actually see it for yourself on um 
I mean, you know, there'll be people say if any MP posts a picture of themselves when they were on, you know, on tour in Afghan, everyone be like, you'll just see everyone on these talk boards going, look at the uniform. I remember people like that because it's so ironed and, you know, it's like, yeah. all right, you know, you're just you're, you're a desk journey. They can't stand it. So really, it's fun to watch and read. <laughs> Yeah, no, I found it very interesting. A couple of of, uh, of of friends of mine told me all about. It. I just, but that that level of fancy, that level of going into the dressing up box. Yeah, you know, again, we've seen that with Johnson with this, you know, Top Gun Maverick, and so what does he do? You know, one of his, I think, one of his first actions as caretaker prime minister was to spend an enormous amount of money having fun dressing up as someone who's in the RAF. They always dress up. I saw Liz dressed as a train driver the other weekend. You know, they. It's just a sort of thing that they love to do. I, I can't, I'd love to see some proper research on whether anyone looks at that and thinks, oh, you, that Liz Truss, she doesn't mind putting a silly cap and a high vis on. She'll be, you know, does anyone, does this have any impact on anybody? I mean, I, I just, I'd love to know, but it's such a sort of, it's the stock in trade, isn't it? Of the spin doctors to get them looking out like this. I, 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 know, I have no idea whether it pulls well or even at all or is it just met by the average British person with complete confusion I yeah, might I... you never see people dressing up as politicians do you and pretending to be a politician for the day oh it's on a building site I said well, why don't we all put, take off our high visits and just you know put on a blue dress and like point at things for a day and see I think it should start happening the other way around I don't think anyone wants to do that reenact that, that no, you'll never see that reenact contaminates the uh <laughs> Because Liz Truss, when I when I watch her and, and some of the others actually in that leadership contest, whenever you see them uh, debating or talking, it always reminds me of one of those science fiction films where some scientists are trying to make a robot that people will believe <laughs> is human. And yeah. they go, there's something that's still not quite right. No, it just what, doesn't seem authentic enough. What's that thing? What's that? Is, you'll know more about this than me. It's the Uncanny Valley. Am I right yeah. in saying yeah, that the Uncanny the, Valley is the sort of slightly ineffable gap between sort of credibility gap is that am i right in saying yeah it's basically it's, it's that bit that when you see uh when you have a a a, a, a doll made yeah. that looks just too huge so you have a doll that looks like a doll but when yeah. people try to make a doll that looks really human there's something in us that actually feels a little bit nauseous there's yeah. this kind of like oh that's not right yeah, you just described my experience as a viewer of the debates. Yeah, it's really, that's, that's what I feel like, that they, someone has kind of hatched them in a Petri dish and it's just a little bit too much. How, how much has uh, going into this world of politics and, and writing on a regular basis, how much of it do you think has changed your politics and, and, and your thoughts of well, I suppose even even your ethics and what what you believe in have you actually seen a change in in, in that over the last six years yeah I def I tell you what it's made it's made me it's made me rather to be that close to it I do think that there are fewer and fewer people who are in it for public service um, and I think the caliber of people coming you know if you just look at a couple of recent by-elections you know the Tories really wanted to win in that place where um, they'd lost the guy over the tractor porn. I can't even believe I'm saying that out loud. You see, I've, I've said that out loud. How, how, this is what the last few years has done to us. You know, the guy who watched porn Robin in the House yeah. of Commons on his phone, like repeatedly and said he was trying to look for tractors. Yeah, as I say, it's been a funny few years. Anyway, the, the woman they were trying to get in, in instead of him, 
was absolutely useless. I just thought, I can't, you know, they really want to win this seat. And if, if this is who is coming through, I really fear for it. What I also think is that they don't even, I n have no idea why many of these people seem to want power. They keep talking about like, you know, we're thinking about the next election, but, but what you haven't done anything. Mm. Boris Johnson's government has done nothing. Like it's, it's really genuinely extraordinary. He, he's gonna leave office unable to define its central policy leveling up, which like nobody knows what it means and hasn't been done anyway. And I, it's quite odd to, but you see it all comes from the top and he, he only had interest in himself being the prime minister. Not even his best friends would say he had interest in public service. And I think that's the first time I've, I can't think of anyone who's been prime minister, however, whatever you feel on either side of the political spectrum. And I've sympathized with people who really felt their, their person was, was great. I don't think you would accuse anyone from Theresa May backwards for quite a long time of simply being in it solely out of, with absolutely no interest in public service. People may not have liked Thatcher, the people might not have liked Blair, they might have had all sorts of, but they did have, a significant element of them was in, interested in public service. Yes, they were vain and whatever and whatever, they're politicians. But Johnson had, I mean, he, I really honestly think he's a sociopath. I agree. Well, it is a dressing up game, isn't it? He's evil. That's what he wanted to be. He, he I, I want to be prime minister. Yeah. And then you get, he doesn't want to do anything with that. He wanted, he, just... to be, he wanted to become prime minister, to have that wonderful feeling of like winning. And he wants to have been prime minister because it's a feather in the cap. It's just the entire bit in the middle that he struggles with. So he mm. had no idea of anybody. I mean, I'm not even aware of any sort of vanity projects he was interested in. I, mean, I think, you know, if any of us came by and said, we'd have about five things, even if they're just in the arts, saying, I really want to do this while I'm here. He just had no, and I understand he had a pandemic, but he had plenty of time that he did nothing about the pandemic and he never did anything. He's, he's accomplished absolutely nothing. Yeah, it's, I, I was doing a thing with um, a, a newspaper review at a festival and I was with Selena Godden, who yeah. uh, brilliant author of, of Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, amongst other things. Um, the one column that really, we were, neither of us read newspapers very much. And so they're oh, always they're more shocking. Yeah, it's not like that kind of thing that you go, oh my God. And Andrew Roberts, the historian, mm. written a piece for the Mail on Sunday, which said, Boris Johnson, don't worry, Boris Johnson, you will be remembered, history will remember you as a great prime minister. I'd love to be that sort of historian. But that was what, I, we were both shocked. And then <laughs> Selena suddenly went, I've realised what he's saying. What he's saying is, don't worry how bad you were, Boris, we've got your back. Yeah. We'll re and, and that was the bit where you went, oh my God, imagine if such a thing could occur, that this idea that he got all, you know, all the big calls right. And that's just, you know, anyone who's read the book Failures of State about the, oh the first God. few, it's all amazing. of those things. It, it's just not true. That was such an interesting book, Failures of State. And I found that that actually was a moment. Yes, that's going back to your earlier question. That's something that really sort of stuck with me and made me quite sad over the past couple of years, particularly because I thought that book was just so extraordinary and so meticulous and so utterly damning in how it revealed how, you know, the British people were failed. And yet, really the thing that did for Boris Johnson was those parties. Um, and, and okay, politics is a quirky old business, but what I found, but before they, we ever knew about those parties, for a long time, that book was out, people, you know, we knew. But I think that the key thing is that the British people didn't, they deserved better, yes, but they, did, they no longer expected better. 
And that to me makes me worry about whether we're on a real, a really serious decline as a country, because, you know, you should expect that you should expect much better than you were given on that. But the fact that they, the fact that people didn't expect better meant that they could tolerate the horror um, and, and the failures. And the fact, and, and I think that not expecting better is a very worrying position for a society to be in. I think that's a position of decline. That is not your best years are in front of you. If you no longer expect to get better, your, your best years are not in front of you. So something has to change in order to make people, you know, expect higher standards and therefore demand that people stick to them. This seems, I, I wonder about, because cognitive dissonance seems to, it's like when I watch the playing out of the culture wars and things like that, and I've seen various people who I think have almost gone mad because trying to balance their, to, to not see sometimes the insidiousness or, or the venom or the toxicity of their, uh, of, of, of their new beliefs means that your brain is constantly at battle with itself. And if your brain is constantly at battle with itself, then uh, eventually you, you have no coherence left even though you can believe that you're logical and you can believe it. And, and it feels to me a little bit like that. That's, it's a bit like looking at, again, having been abroad for a while, having not been obviously for the last couple of years, when I come back to the UK and I go, God, isn't everyone drunk again tonight? Isn't everyone drunk? Oh, going back home. Is and I think, Oh yeah, of course you have to be drunk to believe anything that, you know, when I, the moment I get on a train service in this country and I go, it's disgusting and it's broken and all of the money which is going to the, and when you look at the, all of the shit that's being poured out into the sea, you know, yesterday oh, there were, there were yeah. 50 different beaches that were, had sewage warnings and all of the rivers where you can't grow cress anymore and the wildlife is dying and people are still getting their uh, share bonuses and their dividends and, and the people who run it are getting two million pounds as they destroy everything. You think the only way, I want to believe Britain's great, I better have another pint. Yes, I think that it's a rational response. It's a, it is a rational response. And I'm, I, I do, funny enough, this um, nice person I follow who's I, sort of clever at disaster planning, things like that was making me laugh the other day. She was saying, you know, does anyone know where it would be possible to, when it will be possible to book a train ticket to Manchester? Which to me seemed, she said, just what a normal country working in a normal way. You know, she goes on the website for, she wants to make a journey in two weeks. And they're saying these, you know, train times will be cut. Train, it'll be possible to buy a ticket soon. Like, yeah. can, I, can I just buy a train ticket to Manchester, please? I, well, this is not normal. This is so ridiculous. I, I do think people think lots of things are falling apart. Yes, and you can see it all around. That the, the public realm is that it was rather clever. That thing that man said after there was some some EU diplomat said just after in the honestly like two weeks after brexit or something that the uk is like the cartoon character that's run run off the cliff but hasn't yet looked down and i feel like we've been we we spent quite a long time running off that cliff you know we've been running post imperially some to some extent we've been sort of running on fumes for a long time and you think you're different but we were not we were not realists um and i i think that reality will be entirely unavoidable for the next couple of years well that does seem to be because I mean you, your first column about Brexit where 
and it brought it all back. I remember waking up at like 6.30 in the morning thinking, oh, I don't think it's ended up in the way that it looked like it was going to turn at midnight. I was pretty certain. I was about to go to Glastonbury Festival to record a monkey cage. And just, and as you said, the first thing that happened when that referendum uh, was for uh, leaving Europe was lots of people going on the news and saying, oh, well, you know, Daniel Hannan and Nigel Farage and quickly saying, oh, you know, all the things that we said were going to happen. And well, we won't be able to do that. Just so you know. I mean, that was just a bit of mucking around. And suddenly all their propaganda, they were quickly distancing themselves from everything that they won. And that seems to be... And then David Davis, you know, these stories of him turning up when the EU turn up with case after case of documents for the first meeting, and he turns up pretty much in his shirt sleeves yeah. with nothing, goes, oh, yeah. And they go, have you, you not got... And when I talk to civil yeah. servants, they just go... There's a, someone I know who's just retired as a civil servant said, I just... He said, I, we spent two years just going, would you like us to do... No, you don't. Okay, it would be a good idea if we did. And that that idea, of, and I think that was the same They're also very with COVID. Lazy. They're very lazy, actually. They're surprisingly lazy. I'm amazed how much they talk about like British workers and graft and like we're the laziest in the world, whatever. I mean, I think these guys are so lazy. It's extraordinary. You know, David Davis was one of the laziest ministers ever, and just they they hadn't even found out the basics. They really didn't understand anything. It was, I mean, I don't think anyone should ever feel like an imposter ever again, except they do, because normal people have that little thing in their brain that thinks, I don't think I should be here. I bet you he never sat once sat down with his empty briefcase and their piles of document and thought, actually, should I be here? <laughs> he never thought that. They never have imposter syndrome. They should be injected with it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's absolutely... I want awful. a forced programme. Yeah, put that on your programme. I want a forced programme of injection of imposter syndrome. I want to be held down and have it injected into them. Just some self-awareness, please. Some shame. Um, quick questions on books. Who was your favourite uh, author when you were young, when you were a child? Who did you, you love reading? Oh, God, I... I used to read so many... I never had a pony, obviously, and certainly would have had nowhere to put one. I read so many different books about ponies and I can't, God, I can't even remember. There was a book called Jill's Jim Carner. I probably read about 400 times from like the 1950s. I used to read all these things, but I love things like Enid Blyton and the flower. I love the faraway tree, things like that. I, all these, I mean, I really just had my parents' books from when they were younger, these kind of ancient copies of, I don't know, the famous five and, you know, the faraway tree and things like that. So I had, those is what I had. And I went over and over and over them again. That was good. That, that's why my mum loved alternative comedy. She didn't really love alternative comedy, but the first ever comic strip presents was Five Go Mad in Dorset. Oh, so and because good. she grew up in the in the 40s and 50s and used to read Island of Adventure and all of those yeah. things, seeing Aid Edmondson and French and Saunders and everyone being, yeah. I've watched that one about a hundred times. It's so good. I wish they'd put them all on again. They're so good. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely adore them. They they were a bit, something that changed me. The, uh, yeah, yeah. What about um, authors? Who's your favourite author? Oh, I hate playing favourites. I, I, I don't... No, you don't have to write. What I mean is, who do you find yourself, right, favourites? Who do you find yourself where the, you go, oh, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to read again. Those kind of certain books well, that you turn to. This, that changes all the time. But at the moment, I'm going on a real tear with Barbara Pym, who I'm afraid I'm so... I'm so such a Philistine, I didn't properly know about her. And I read a very interesting article by someone who said these were all excellent women about these kind of mid-century, whatever. And actually her at the moment, so I've got my mid-century women, I've got her, I've got Muriel Spark. I just go, I treat myself 
um, to going back to those, or in this case of Barbara Pym, I'm still working my way through the full catalogue. And I absolutely love them. I find the whole story of it, I don't know, there's something so relatable about it. And perhaps I grew up with people a little bit. It's so old fashioned, but I recognise the voices. I find the dialogue so I can hear it being said by people who are now gone in my life. <laughs> do, do you ever read Elizabeth Taylor? No, I have. Okay, right. Thank you. Thanks for putting me on a tear. That I, I would love to read. I would love. I would love to read some. Oh, I, I, I love uh, Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont. Uh, okay, which I'm gonna... one is just read? It's, it's got that bit again of of those little details uh, where uh, my friend just just uh, said, "Oh, look at that paragraph," and it's this one of of all these old people sitting around in their in their hotel, their residential hotel. And it's why one of the old ladies had, keeps her um, box of chocolates hidden under the cushion. It's not because she doesn't want to share them, but the last time that she did, Colonel Trefusis rubbed his finger across the cherry cup and then the hazelnut whirl before taking the walnut cream. So that's why, she, you know, it's that kind of detail well, of that lovely... That. I love that. I'm, okay, I thank you for turning on to that. The thing I read my, a, a huge amount of, and probably the only subject on which I'm an expert by that 10,000 hours slightly debunked claim, um, is um, about, about old Hollywood, the studio system, um, the, the birth of it. I, I find those stories, those sort of immigrant stories of you know, I think they can only really exist in the 20th century. You know, the guy who started Para, Paramount, um, Adolf Zucker, he was a first generation. He was a fur trapper in Ukraine in the absolute poorest shtetl, the absolute, you know, I mean, a brutal frontier life, basically. And he comes across and he's, you know, he goes to New York and then he goes to California. He goes to L.A. and they sort of conjure Hollywood out of an orange grove. And they create this extraordinary thing, the art form of the 20th century, and, um, you know, there's a picture of him on his 100th birthday in the Beverly Hills Ballroom, obviously, which would never have existed without these guys, these moguls. And he's with like Jack Nicholson and Bob Evans, the legend of beauty, and there's a sort of seven foot cake. And you think, my God, I mean, you were working age, trapping fur, and then look at, look at the, I think those journeys, that the scale of that sort of journey and is so extraordinary. So I love reading about the studio system and, um, you know anything up to sort of Hollywood 1950. Have you been to the Hollywood Cemetery? Yes. Did you see Toto's grave? Yeah. One of Toto. I mean I, I love all of that any form of sort of any anything to do with that and um, I've read endless books on all of it. I couldn't find the William Holden's mausoleum when I went and I was really oh. determined to find William Holden's mausoleum. No I think I did I think I did well perhaps I'm wrong I I sort of vaguely, well, if I can't remember, then perhaps I didn't. Okay, well, I, there's always another trip. Well, that's it. You're never going to find them all on one go. No, I absolutely, I absolutely uh, yeah, adore all that stuff. Um, Marina, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, out on the 6th of October, uh, what just happened? And it is, I, I, I think, I, I know you were slightly kind of like, oh, I wonder if whether people want to go back through these times. But I, <laughs> I, think, I think what's fascinating is also finding out suddenly people who were front stage and then you go, where are they now? So Chris Grayling, you know, and, and, yeah. and, and all of these people who managed to sail through various different positions, smashing everything in, in, in their wake. And now we barely hear about them. I know it's so odd, isn't it? I mean, I, some of the yes, and the, I mean, there's lots of other bits that isn't the politics in there. I should say there's poli there's the celebrities and the sports and the royal family, but yeah, the, the politician characters they twirl off into a gilded sunset, don't they? Yeah. He's probably commissioning. He's probably 
taking a huge whack off a ferry company these days. Marina Hyde, thank you very much. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, and don't forget, you can support us via uh, Patreon and all of our back catalogue. Uh, we've got loads of different stuff, as well as book shambles. There's hundreds of book shambles now. Uh, and uh, if you get a chance, uh, go and have a look at what we've got and support us via Patreon if you can. Thank you. Bye. And thank you to our producer, Trent Burton. Oh, God, thanks for having me. Thank you, Marina. Thank you very much for listening. Remember to go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the show. Remember that Robin's book, Bibliomaniac, is out very soon and the paperback of Importance of Being Interested has just come out as well. You can get both of those from cosmicshambles.com slash shop. And while you're on the Cosmic Shambles site, don't forget to check out tickets for The Compendium of Reason with Robin and Brian Cox and Nine Lessons as well. We'll be back next week with another new episode. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe, be good, and bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.